Hi, my name is Bill Binch, Operating Partner at Battery Ventures. Thanks for tuning in to Soundbites, the podcast series that explores best practices in sales, marketing, and go-to-market for B2B SaaS companies. You're about to listen to one of our original episodes that ran in a live webinar format. Since this episode aired, we've pivoted to a podcast format so you can get more of the great Soundbites content you love in an asynchronous format. But the classics are worth a listen to, so enjoy. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody, depending on where you're at. And welcome to the third Battery Soundbites webinar. I'm your co-host today, Bill Bench, and uh, I'm enthusiastic about today's session. But before I dive into our, our speakers that are going to be joining me today. Uh, joining me today is Neeraj Agrawal, a 23-year veteran of battery, uh, a Bostonite, and uh, and a good friend. He and I have been working together for over a dozen years together. So welcome, Neeraj. Awesome. Thanks, Bill, for having me. I'm excited to to hear from Abe and learn all the interesting lessons he's learned over his his career here. Yeah, I was thinking about today when you said 23 years at, at battery that I've known you for about half of those now, uh, Neeraj and I worked together first when he made an investment at Marketo, where I spent about 10 years. And then he was the person that introduced me to my next role, CRO, at Pendo, where I spent about three years before coming and joining up with him here at Battery. So like I said, a good you know, 13, 14 year history together. Um, but let's shift to the real star of the show today. Uh, we have a person that's joining us that firstly and most importantly, I call a friend. This is a person that I lean to when I'm in need of ideas, when I want to bounce a topic off, and it's a value that I really find great in, um, in talking with Abe. So um, joining us today is Abe Smith, who is the head of international for Zoom. And uh, I'll, Abe, I'll give a quick little rundown of your background just to, to set the table a little bit. Ba sure. Abe is a uh, also a Bostonian. Um, Neeraj went to Harvard, lives there. I had the fortune of living there for seven years. Abe's born there. Abe's a, a, a true Bostonian, went to UMass at Amherst, uh, spent your first six or seven years of your career cutting your teeth there in the market before making your way west, where what I would describe as a pivotal move for you of joining a, a small video company called WebEx, um, right. where we're, we're going to talk a little bit about some of your experience that you gained there, um, rode that through the Cisco acquisition and then moved after that to a company called Mindjet where he and I had the fortune of meeting and building our relationship from there uh, um, Abe, Abe went and joined an organization called Badgeville where he met uh, a key person in his career named Kevin Ackroyd uh, Kevin then hired Abe into Oracle's marketing cloud and then again hired Abe to run international precision uh, where you lived in London before making the move back to the States yet again to join up with Eric Yuan and the Zoom team. Eric, who you had obviously met from your WebEx days, uh, right. brought you back in to run international for uh, Zoom a little over four years ago. If I get the rundown correctly, that sound about right? It's like a page from This Is Your Life. So thank you. Yeah, it's it's accurate. Thank, thanks for having me here. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, no like I, said, Dave, I, I always value our conversations when I was putting... Sound bites together. You were on that list of the people that were on the must-have for uh, guests. So thank you for taking the time out today. My pleasure. Great to be here. Hey, go, go, Pats. Go, go, Red right Sox on. for Nourish. So I have to awesome. put in a plug. Gotta, gotta put up a plug for the hometown. 
Yeah. Nears is, is from Queens, though. So Nears, who do you oh. I, I've been in Boston 25 years now. My kids are Boston fans, so Celtics and Bruins right now. Just have a choice, yeah, exactly. Well, good. Uh, well, hey, before we dive into the business side of who you sure. are, let's stay back in in the Boston, the formative years a bit. Uh, obviously, you have a tremendous amount of international and global experience that we're going to touch on today. Uh, but that all started back a little earlier uh, in you developing what I'd consider an appetite for international when you went over to, to, to Japan and right. taught English over there. I'd love to hear a little bit about how that came about. How did you learn Japanese? What was that process? Yeah. yeah, I mean, first of all, thanks for asking. So the, you know, it uh, there was a couple of catalyst moments. You know, I grew up in a family that had a lot of conversation around uh, international and government and political affairs at the dining room table. And my father was a real Chinophile and, you know, very interested in Asian culture. And then I took it one step further. I actually studied Japanese in college. I was a political science major. You know, I, uh, you know, I got a certificate in international relations. So I, it was something that always just interested me personally. And I focused and gravitated more towards Asian history and the languages and so forth. Uh, you know, serendipity gave a chance to go to a small fishing village in southern Japan in Kyushu and worked for a ministry of, of education, the Ministry of Education and Foreign Affairs, teaching English. But the real, you know, I guess the real gem of the experience was a chance to just immerse myself in a culture and get to know a place at a very intimate level, not as a tourist, you know, better understand the people, the places, you know, the food, the religion, the thinking, et cetera. And then, um, you know, it was very inspirational for me. And, uh, you know, when I got back uh, from Japan, I knew immediately that I wanted to do something around international business. I just didn't know what. And, uh, you know, I think the the best advice I got when I returned to the United States was, it's wonderful that you're interested in Asia and it's great that you've got this enthusiasm for the international markets, but you gotta be, you know, a specialist in something. What's your 10,000 hours? And uh, long story, but, you know, I gravitated towards sales and marketing and, you know, I built my 10,000 hours in, in, you know, the world of cloud and, and software and computing. And then I, you know, I merged the passions. I guess you could say I merged the passions. Yeah, you, you kind of pre-answered my my question that I was going to ask about, which was you returned from that trip. You clearly saw that international was going to be some component of your future. So fast forward a few years in your working career, it seems like your time at WebEx, where you started off as a rep, moved yourself yeah. up, but then you got the opportunity to delve into that international element uh, was that a key arc of your career? Yeah, it always was. I mean, so, you know, for me, you know, at a personal and professional level, it was staying focused on, on what I wanted to do. And I always knew that this is exactly what I wanted to do. So when people ask me, like, do you aspire to be a chief revenue officer or president or CEO? And while all those things are really interesting to me, this is the pinnacle. You know, I actually set my sights on running international, having a broad purview across the world and then doing exactly what I'm doing now. So, but it started, like you said, you know, when I when I was in a company like WebEx, which was growing quickly, you know, it was really identifying opportunities and raising hands where, you know, I was managing a Northeast team. I went from rep to managing, an, uh, you know, a, a territory. And then somebody on my team said, hey, look, we get all these leads that come in from Latin America. I happen to speak Spanish. You want to help me develop the region? And that was honestly probably the first international assignment where we said, you know what, let's go do this. Let's actually tackle it, not in a way that, you know, adds little bits and bites, but adds maybe real meaning to the company. 
And that one rep became five, five became a team. And then slowly but surely, we started to build out Latin America. And then I had the opportunity to grow out Asia Pacific and other parts of emerging markets and broader parts of the, the world for WebEx. So, you know, I think part of it, you know, professionally on the pursuit, it's, it's really being true to the craft and then, you know, merging again, the idea of the skill, which was understanding how to build high growth sales teams and focus on the revenue and then diversifying a way that allowed a complete go-to-market and establishing teams that could really succeed in any part of the world. Maybe to chime in there, I don't know if Bill, if I can do that on on uh, on this one, but just uh, I, I, what I find is we have you know a lot of companies get to the fifty to hundred million range roughly, and they start thinking about international. And what I find really interesting, Abe, in, in the way you have it set up at Zoom, and it seems like a lot of different backgrounds on this. It's like you're based in the U.S., you run international from from here. Um, as companies think about where how to establish international, can you talk about the pros and cons of like that approach? Where, where do you recommend folks hire that first person? Should it be in Asia? Should it be in EMEA? How, how should they go about thinking uh, around that? Well, it's a great question, Arish. And I think actually the first point that you said is probably uh, the most important part to think about is that first $50 million. So, you know, as a company starts to bridge past the first 10, they're getting feet on the ground and actually they're executing well in the United States, which is number one. Let's be clear. You know, I think for a lot of SaaS companies, you've got to, you got to do it right here in the United States. That's the critical market. And we all appreciate that, you know, before you can start to think about the quick, the quixotic adventures around the, the world and, you know, how you enter Asia and what you think about in Europe and so forth. I think it's getting the house and the foundation right in the U S from there. It's like, you know, what we found and what I've seen in companies like WebEx and Zoom and other places, even like Badgeville, where we were just cresting past that $10 million mark, you start to see signals where there was interest. If the company is really getting that foundation right, there's interest that organically starts to happen. And that usually happens in leads or that happens, you know, with an inquiry or people coming to a webinar or whatever the case may be. And then the first question that you ask is, do those signals allow you a way to start to think about it more logically and start to address it in a way that makes a lot of sense for the company? You know, in places like WebEx, as I just mentioned, you know, a couple of minutes ago, you had that one person in the team that spoke a foreign language that wanted to stay up late or get up early. And you know what? That's a great place to start. In the case of Zoom, I was really interested to see when I joined the company, you know, I joined the company around $250 million and, you know, in that first 50, 50 to hundred and so forth, something interesting really happened, which I'd never seen before is the establishment of a team called ROW, which don't ever name your team this because it's called rest of world. And it's a little bit, uh, you know, it's a little bit derogatory. If you think about it, it's like us and everywhere else, yes. but uh, from the ROW perspective, there was just a land of the misfit toys, a hodgepodge of reps that said, I'll stay up late. I speak, you know, Farsi, I speak, you know, Japanese, I happen to know a little bit of, of Arabic, et cetera. And these were very, you know, intelligent go-getter reps that said, you know, I'm willing to help develop this. Now, bear in mind, the go-to-market was all in English and, you know, the hours are a little bit ragtag and, you know, the go-to-market wasn't exactly perfected. However, it was shocking how many deals actually converted and then how it started to build a foundation for, you know, the, the first account, the second account. So when we actually started to think about when I entered the business of thinking about, okay, how do we go into these markets? Zoom had already hired those first, uh, you could say, key nationals. So like many traditional cloud companies, it was a national in the UK and it was a national in Australia. And they were able to start to think about that foundational team, the core investments, 
and then basically a few of the lighthouse accounts. So there was momentum that established from that early day motion in the United States. There was a handoff that was starting to happen from I sell you domestically, though you're internationally. It was the foundation of that first national hire, that person that was a little bit of a category specialist, somewhat of an entrepreneur. You know, in some cases, you see that happen where, you know, somebody is sent from the United States into a market and that can work too. In our case, we happen to have those national approaches. And that, that created that first foundation of UK and Australia. And, uh, you know, happy to talk a little bit from what happens from there. But I think as you start to think about that expansive ability, then you start to think about somebody like myself, where we're now going to programmatize and we're really going to accelerate and turn on you know, the energy, if you will, across the world. Now, it's up to somebody like me to start to set the strategy. And at that point, you know, the company at 250 million, 300 million, 350 million, clear path to an IPO. You have to start to think about the public markets and what it means to really be foundationally ready to diversify the business beyond the U.S. borders. And that's where, you know, the professionalism of an international team and international leadership, national leadership really makes a difference. That's great. That's great. Um, what do you think about the first set of countries, English speaking, non-English speaking? Um, do you I, I imagine you work with a lot of folks that don't yet have international execs? Do you tend to tell suggest one specific spot to to start with, one specific country? You know, it's um it's a great question. I think, you know, generally speaking, very cautious for again, a, a US-based cloud company to think about going too far into languages that they're just not ready for. Now, you know, you might argue that a European language like French or a European language like German is in the comfort zone. I don't know. I mean, to be very honest with you, it, it's, it's a temperament question and it's around maturity of the organization because uh, the easiest place and the easiest way to address is English first, at least, you know, your core collateral, your product marketing, your website, your, your general go-to-market, it's all translated. It's ready to go. It's it's in the language that you say, hey, this is a foundationally we're going to be. Now, it might not be, you know, the Queen's English, and it might not be the mother tongue, you know, specifically as somebody would like, but it's understood. Uh, I think where it gets a little bit tricky is when you get into aggressively localized markets too soon. And that can be a Japan, that can be a Brazil, that can be a, you know, a China. Uh, that can even be a Germany. You know, it was interesting when I came to Zoom, we had one person on the ground in Germany. We were starting to address the market and we had to make a fundamental decision. And there was the fundamental decision that I made at that point was, look, you know, Germany is the you know fourth largest economy in the world. It's the first largest economy in, uh, in, in Europe. Uh, we need to own this market, even though it's going to be hard. Investment will start now. So when we made that decision, there's a slew of localization and go-to-market, market entry and expansion considerations that we had to get the company around, and we had to get buy-in. You know, and honestly, there was a really distinct buy-in that was necessary. So, I caution people from being too aggressive, especially at the forefront. Get some of that English market experience right, prove it. You know, and then the company will actually be a little bit more tolerant and start to get around you. When you say, here's where I think we go next, it's harder. It's going to play in place more stress on the company, but I think it's worth it. And that's, you know, those are those are kinds of things that we did at Zoom. Got it, Gabe. I want to uh, dive into the ramp 
like you said, the preparation mentally that you took to go into Germany, for instance. But before yeah. we go there, a lot of people come to you seeking input, uh, seeking advice on going global. And yeah. I've learned from talking with you that that normally starts with a caution from you, that before thinking about going global, you need to think about some of the pitfalls, some of the obstacles that are going to present. Can you share some of those blockers? Like when 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 I approach you and say, Abe, uh, I'm at 50 million, I'm thinking about, you know, entering Europe. What are the things that you're going to caution me to think about? Yeah. And I, I get the question all the time. And, you know, for an internationalist, I tend to be probably the most negative guy about going abroad, as anybody could imagine. So uh, it, it, it's only out of love. So I'll tell you that, first of all, if you're a CEO or you're a CRO on this call, and I'm not discouraging it. I want everybody to actually go build the world because I think it's the most important thing you can do. And that's frankly how you you build an epic company. It's not just here in the United States. So, you know, I'll give you an example. Like I did get the question from a CEO had raised a very sizable uh, funding. I mean, at this point was north of 500 million in funding that was raised and they were far along in their capital, you know, again, in their capital raise and very, you know, seasoned executive, a classic big tech experience, very, very bullish on where to go. And, you know, what he had said to me is, I, I'm very interested in going into Japan. I want to go, you know, you know, when I, I want to enter Japan. And, you know, my my question was, was why? You know, first of all, you, you your category is not even shaped in the U.S. You have like two people in Australia. That's your APAC presence. Your company has no foundational experience on how to localize. You're going to enter a market that is the most locally intense market you could potentially imagine. Uh, you're going to have to commit to educating and designing the go-to-market yourself so that the rest of the world and your competitors can, can then follow suit. And then, by the way, as a CEO, you got to be prepared to make no money in that market for the next three years. And when your leadership and your sales reps tell you that they're not going to sell anything for year number one or year number two, I hope you're okay with that. And he, and he was like, well... You know, I think we need to do it because we have to go. We're going to go public soon. I was like, well, first of all, you're not going public this year. No offense, but uh, uh, I just, you know, the moral of the story is was, you know, really ask yourself where and why. Now there could be some great reasons. Like I think in in many cases there could be founders on this call or or CEOs or CROs that have very deep experience in a country. Like you know, Freshworks has a very strong background in India or. You know, Hiro-san from Treasure Data was a Japanese entrepreneur. Erdogan, our CEO, has rich and deep experience in China. We had, you know, presence and strength there. And that that gives you an advantage where if you're able to capitalize on that, that's an absolutely unique advantage and you should consider that. I think what you really have to contemplate, though, is what's the stress it's going to put on the company? Is the company ready for it? And is the award or reward worth the the vital few that you're forsaking elsewhere. So when you make a decision to go into a market, you know, it's not a tepid decision you're in. And, you know, there's not a lot of going back unless you literally divorce yourself from the market and you pull out. So I think, you know, what people have to realize is they're making a, a commitment that that has to have longevity and that comes with some seriousness. Maybe just add to that, the, the what, what commitments do you ask uh, from your CEO or other executives? before doing that. Um, maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's a thoughtful question too, because, you know, it, both at Oracle and here at Zoom, we put together a, a, a unique team. It's a bit of a tiger team, which 
not a lot of companies have. So I'll share with you a little bit of secret sauce is we have a team that we built called market, you know, market entry, market, market readiness, market entry, and market expansion. And it's a small group of individuals that think about the totality of how we have to serve a market. And that is the entire customer experience and the employee experience. So, you know, think about it when you're ultimately building a market again, let's take a Japan or Brazil or France or Germany or Singapore or wherever, the customer experience would be great from the beginning or at least get there sometime. So in other words, if I'm in you know Japan, I want the website in Japanese, you want to buy in yen, you want to be able to receive technical support in Japanese, you have to have billing in your local language, et cetera. So the paragon should be how to create all those things. You know, at the minimum level, as we start to think about entry into a cu- country nowadays, we look at a somewhat of a pod structure. So, you know, inevitably you need your AEs. And let's be clear, you know, any CEO and any leader like myself says, we got to go sell and we have to drive revenue. That's number one. The shortcoming is, is when you don't give enough accoutrement around the rep to at least make their job viable. So, by that, I mean, it could be an SE, it could be a customer success representative, it could be the right ops person, sales ops person. There's a team of like eight, nine, or 10 when we think about a market entry that we minimize, or we have a foundation that's pretty close nearby. So for example, we put more of a substantive position in Singapore, knowing that we were going to start to develop across ASEAN. So if you think about the hub and spoke, you know, Singapore did become our data center, we had technical infrastructure, we have, you know, 100 plus people there, we have an office space, we have senior leadership, etc. And that gave us a little bit of more fortitude as we looked into Malaysia and Indonesia, for example, knowing that we still had to have that pod entrance where the core folks could draw on the resources, but have enough critical mass to do their job. Uh, I think the mistake that a lot of people make is sometimes they say rep first and it's a bit of a lone ranger scenario. They just don't have enough. And that's a recipe for disaster. And by the way, is there a certain number of reps that is enough critical mass? That's the other thing we often see is like someone will put one person in France and one in the UK and one over here. My sense is you need, you need a little bit more than that. Can you talk about, is there in your experience, a critical mass aspect? I think it also, it depends on the market too, because obviously there's a size of a market that makes a difference. Like as we started to look, for example, in Southern Europe, we were a lot more demure in like a Greece or a Turkey or, a, uh, you know, a Spain or an Italy even compared to a France, which, you know, was a primary market for us. So, you know, when we invest in, we think about scale and, and frankly for us, you know, at Zoom, uh, the intent is actually to model the same framework that we have in the revenue organization in the United States. So for consistency, and as you think about a global organization, which I'm a part of, right, you know, the more I start to deviate the model, unless I have to, it makes it very difficult from a reporting perspective, from you know just how we manage the business, the you know global go-to-market consistency, et cetera. So we try to you know emulate where we can the segments, the channel strategy, you know the the accoutrements around the reps and so forth. So in a large market like you know uh, Germany, for example, the goal is to start to scale to hundreds of people. In a smaller market, you know, for example, like uh, even in Mexico City, where we're a little bit more managed, that's probably eight to 12 folks. Got it. Okay, great. Yeah. Got it. Abe, I've been hearing, in addition to the classic move, that you ask some of your folks from your HQ country to move over so that they come and bring the business process, they bring the culture of the company over there. 
I've started to hear a lot of executives talk about their companies are investing in rotations where they're sending people a lot of times by function. Like we're going to send a CSM over to the country for a month. We're going to send yeah. a tech support person. And that way you start through osmosis and learning. And even if, as you know, even if you don't speak the language, you find a way to communicate. I totally agree. And in fact, you were one of the pioneers in that bill, you know, back in the day in Marketo with some of the moves that you made outside the U.S. I was watching that because you'd rotate in some really interesting folks that could immediately add value and help, you know, bring the culture into the city, bring the expertise into the city, et cetera. So I like the concept. I mean, you know, it gets a little tricky. You know, we found, you know, we found a couple bumps in the road around, you know, visas and, you know, how people are coming in and out of the country and, and, and stuff like that. So, you know, it takes a little bit of doing, we want to do it actually, believe it or not, um, now that we have more maturity. So, you know, what we're trying to think about is how do we prevent now that we've got a little bit more scale and critical mass, we have an $800 million business, for example, in Europe, you know, we want to cross pollinate more, believe it or not, like the business starts to get a little bit more siloed, you know, the French team hangs up with the French team and the German team's hanging out with the German team. And, you know, we have a, a center of excellence in the Netherlands where there's hundreds of people and they're not inter intermingling. So, you know, we, we were thinking about this concept of like a field trips and how do we do field trips and how do we start to allow people to, again, spend a day or two in a city because it's so easy in a European context or, uh, how do we ensure, you know, even things, believe it or not, as executives that vacation or rotate into markets, you got to keep them awareness to say, hey, look, they want to see you. Like, even if it's for dinner or, you know, a quick sure. uh, town hall, it's real important. So a sure. um, couple more here, Abe, and then for all of our, our listeners, start thinking of some questions. We have a bunch that were pre-submitted. Uh, I just answered sure. Line. But um, let me ask a couple more uh, or I'll ask one more and then, then give it to Nearest to ask. But you, you talked about big companies like Japan and Germany, and you talked about, you know, like you said, secondary countries like a Greece or something like that. There seems to be a philosophy out there in the international expansion mindset that sometimes there's a path of there's five or six countries that matter. I think I've heard this come out of your mouth. And yeah. then there's more, I think, encompassing, let's go carpet the world type of perspective. Love to get your, your riff on those two points of view. It's one, I get it. It's, you know, this is like an age old international question that keeps me up all night. And it actually like years ago, I was reading, you know, behind the cloud or, uh, you know, Mark Benioff's book. And, you know, he is a big proponent of six countries matter and they're billion dollar markets. You know, it's a country like Japan where Alan Miner, Sunbridge, you know, created a joint venture, a legendary joint venture, you know, wait us on established an incredible business, you know, Decades later, it's over a billion dollars and extremely vibrant for, for Salesforce. And I applaud the discipline that is associated with being very determined on core markets, the UKs of the world, the Japans of the world, and so forth. And we emulate that in so much as what we have what we call like a P1 structure. So we we focus on priority one countries and we you know, we're assured on how we determine growth and opportunity to get to a real big number. That said, I tend to be a little bit more cavalier, and I believe in the fact that it's a big world out there. And there's massive opportunity. You know, I grew up in developing a lot of the emerging markets. There's massive opportunities right now taking place, which are, it's a timing issue. If you can go get, you know, we just did a very material deal in, in the Middle East. And we have an incredible opportunity in that market. We've done some fantastic stuff in Southeast Asia. You know, we see potential even in places in Africa. You know, 
But I tend to look at the world and say, okay, how do we address it? And that doesn't, by the way, have to be through substantive, you know, direct sales rep deployment. It could be through really intelligent partners. In some cases, in certain markets, we have we have partners that have become almost like Zoom for that market. So for example, we have a partner in Israel that became an early adopter of Zoom. They're practically Zoom Israel. You know, we had a similar structure, you know, in, in a market like Germany, an early partner, they're a very foundational partner in that country. So I think there's a lot to be said for diversifying with the partners and going for it. If you have the framework, the discipline and the operational you know, confidence to say, we can go get that market, go for it. Hey, Abe, just to, just to chime in on this, like this, I've, I've kind of grown up like historically thinking the five, six country model. And so that's the advice I tend to give, you know, CEOs that, that, that I'm you know, involved with. Um, do you think that there's a certain, like, um, do you think that that approach makes sense? Uh, do you, you know, but Zoom is a unique business, right? Zoom is like used by people all around the world. Pandemic is it's like, I'm sure there's, you know, it probably looks like the global population in terms of user base. Yeah, it uh, does. But a lot of B2B does. SaaS tends to, tends not to work that way. So I'm curious if there any, any lessons learned, you know, in terms of these two different approaches as- I, th- as you know, I, I think I think you're right, Niraj. You're like, look, but what I would say is, is that, you know, usually when you land in a market, you do have adjacent markets. So for take, for example, like, you know, Germany, the dock region then becomes your oyster. So there's no reason not to address Switzerland and Austria. We did. And, you know, again, Zoom is, is uh, you're, you're very right. It's very conducive to just about everywhere. And it lends itself to a global audience. And, and, and we, we took stock in that. But I do like the fact that, you know, when we had the right leadership in Germany, we knew we could easily address Switzerland and Austria immediately. And then we built out a structure that allowed us to address Central and Eastern Europe. You know, they're adjacent markets. You know, we're, we've done a similar quadrant structure in Southern Europe where, you know, France is, is now helping to lead more of the growth in Italy, Spain, Portugal, and so forth because we can draw on resources in that quadrant. So I I think there's advantages to that. It's like the Singapore example also, where we were really foundationally focused on a P1 Singapore entrance and development. On the other hand, we knew that that would be the, the, you know, the catalyst for ASEAN, which has hundreds of millions of digital natives. So it depends on the product and it depends on just how you can structure your leadership. But uh, if you're able to, I think there's, there's great opportunity to, to reach those adjacencies. Got it. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Last one for you before we dive into some questions. There's already a great question in the in the chat here. Um, we have a few audience members here that are looking at this from the other way, which is moving into the US. So still a global expansion, but starting from somewhere outside the US. Yeah. Uh, what changes in that motion in your experience? What have you seen when when companies want to enter the domestic USA market? I love this question. And, you know, there's a few folks in in my network that are really thinking about this, particularly like, you know, in fact, we just had this conversation with a delegation from Japan and they're all like, look, there were 18 entrepreneurs from Japan that were here on a, a roadshow in Silicon Valley and they wanted to understand, hey, we all want to come into the United States market. I think it's, it's a tall order. I mean, I think if you're going to be a world-class global company, you have to, right? So, you know, but that said, I've seen some real struggles. I think just just as Americans often don't understand the cultures and the markets that they're entering, I'd say it's it's the other way around. 
I think this market is extremely difficult. Now, you know, first thing is if you're lucky, go find yourself a Bill Bench who you can convince to leave Battery and run the organization for you. You didn't hear that narrow eyes, close your ears, but uh, <laughs> you, you need somebody who is just an absolute, you know, SaaS God and can really say, I am going to be your foundational, you know, your Messiah here in the United States. And I don't think, you know, generally speaking, I don't think people find that really stellar American. Let's start there. Uh, that they can trust, obviously. The second thing is around culture and language. So I think as people come here, it's expected that the CEO participates in the market. If they don't feel confident in English, which again, in the Japanese example is real tough. The fluency was very, very difficult. I think that's a disadvantage. And then number three, it is around, you know, understanding what it takes to go develop this market. So I've seen some really fantastic technology, for example, come out of Israel. Sometimes it's been underfunded as it pertains to uh, sales, sales and marketing, you know, investment. And as you know, for a lot of cloud companies to develop and build here, it takes a lot of effort in terms of scale, headcount, you know, marketing resources and dollars and so forth. So I'd say like, uh, you know, my advice would be, you know, find that beacon leader and then ensure that you, you have full trust in that person to say, we're going to invest with gusto into this market and make sure that you have the same wherewithal in your headquarters, in your back office to support that go-to-market in the U.S. If you do, I think it's critical. Awesome stuff. And everybody, if you're curious about a playbook around how to get into other markets, there's a recent book out there called Global Class. Abe, your fingerprints are all over this thing. You're I love it. In several sections, but uh, a great, a great, like really probably the Bible, if you're going to think about doing an expansion. Um, yes. Long overdue for that book to come out. So, so Abe, let's shift to some questions, uh, put you on the hot sure. seat. Um, first one that's live, it's an outstanding question from Scott Edmonds at Sinkery. Um, he asks, in your opinion, has the last three years of remote work practices changed the strategy about a market entry slash hub and spoke model? Well, it's, you know, it's interesting because and I'm going to, I know we're recording this. I'm going to say, first of all, I think people can, can absolutely do fantastic things as it pertains to developing any market anywhere, anytime using Zoom. So I think you can build your entire go-to-market, whether it's sales, marketing, learning and development, anything you want on our technology. So please embrace it. That said, you got to get in the markets. So, you know, as you're building uh, foundational areas, your primary markets, your secondary markets, et cetera, I think there's a lot to be said about getting to know your hires, getting to know your partners, getting to know your customers, uh, getting involved in the market, whether it's with analysts or media. And that does require you being you know, physically there from time to time. I think it's impossible to uh, not have that as part of your consideration. Uh, we were lucky, you know, before the pandemic, I was very active out in the markets, which seemed ironic for Zoom, but it made a lot of sense. And when everything shut down, we obviously knew how to use the tech to reach lots of people really effectively. And now that it's loosening them up, we're back out there. So I think it's a hefty balance. Cool. Yeah. Let me go to one of the, the earlier submitted questions. Sure. Um, tactical. I love this. I love this. Um, and because you talked about this a little bit of the 10 million, the 50 million, but when do you judge is the right time to explore entering a new market? Well, I think too early is too dangerous. So, you know, to the question that Naraj uh, posed, I do think you have to have a little bit of wind and critical mass uh, in your sales. Like, 
usually you see, you know, the, the execution prowess in the United States, you see the, you know, that first 10 million under your, under foot. When you think about, you know, your, your markets, your first market, your second market and so forth. I think they're, they're, they're the obvious ones. Like we talked about earlier, whether it's the UK or Australia, they're comfortable for most SaaS companies and your executive team and your broader, you know, organization will generally understand that, which is important. I'd say if you have another market that you're going to go identify early, there has to be a reason. Whereas to your point, maybe the product has a very certain appeal in India, or maybe it has a very certain appeal in, you know, in the Middle East or otherwise, or maybe there's a competitive advantage or reason that the executive team can help on a market number two or three or four. And I think that's okay. I think it's okay to think about that. Uh, but you really have to have, you know, your, your mapped out, consideration of why am I doing this? And at the end of the day, ask yourself, if, if I'm doing it, is it going to drive more money and revenue for the company now than doing something else? And that could be domestic too. And that's, that's a question that we raise all the time. You know, uh, I, when I entered Zoom, I was real clear to Eric. I said, look, we're going to go build a billion dollar business outside the United States. I didn't think we were going to do it in a year and a half, but uh, I, you know, I was confident we we're going to go do it. And um, I was also very precise in what we asked of him and what we said we were going to go first, second, and third. And then he ripped up the plan and said, hey, go do three times that amount. And I think that's also another really important part of a CEO. It's like you want a CEO that's behind the mission. And that really says, you know what, I'm not a weekend internationalist. I'm in this. I believe it. I understand it. I know it. And I want to do it. And I won't flinch because there's flinchable moments not benchable moments. There's flinchable moments. So that's awesome. Uh, yeah. yeah, real world experiences. I remember Marketo. We were closing in on 10 million. We were getting a lot of signals from Europe. We had customers. We had never done any marketing there. Didn't have a, a soul on the ground there. And I remember going over uh, Thanksgiving of 2009 to go interview some potential partners, interview some potential MDs, talk to customers, get a feel for the market. And I came back, and the CEO said three words, I missed you. And I said, what does that mean? He said, we've been thinking about this all wrong. We don't own a space or a segment in the US yet. And so to distract us, he's like, I missed you because you weren't in the office. You weren't you know, creating energy. Yep. You weren't here with your team doing things. It's too early for us. And we, we held for yeah. two years. And what I'd say is we then went from, would have been an early entrant to being a late entrant but at that point to what you said about momentum, we had planted the flag in the States on owning something. Totally. Um, really, really strong. So just, and, and your machine, by the way, was so, so strong. Like you could, you could export it, which was also really powerful too. Great, great comment there. Um, Abe, what are your thoughts on using like big level partners, like the PWCs, the, Deplo the Deloitte's and the Accenture's for global expansion, pros and cons around that model? I think for most early companies, uh, don't fool yourself. They don't have time for you. So, and you don't have, you don't have the, you don't have the, you don't have the depth for them, you know? So, you know, for, for a PWC or an Accenture or otherwise to build a practice around something, you have to have something really special. That's absolutely crushing it already in the United States. And then you have to have the wherewithal and the strength of leadership and expertise to manage that practice. I think a Salesforce can do that. I think, you know, a large tech company can do that. I think we're, you know, even at Zoom stage, we're, we're struggling to get that right. So I think it's tall order, really, for the, the global SIs. I think, you know, you might find a boutique SI or somewhat of a regional SI 
that will have some disposition with you. Again, unless your product happens to be that unique product where it's uh, it's an API-driven product and they're going to build something special with your platform, maybe. I just, I've never really seen it been, in my time, I haven't seen it be that effective. Got it. Yeah. Um, a question was pre-submitted and I think I can anticipate your answer, but I'm curious. When launching your first international location, do you treat it as a startup within your startup? You know, I, I, I saw the question. I actually thought it was an interesting question. I, I actually don't like to think of international as like a startup. I like to think of it as it's a formidable part of the business. And we are going to invest in it and actually scale it like any other area. Like, so for example, at Zoom, we made a decision to go scale a product around phone. And today we have 5 million seats of phone three and a half years later after launching the product's fast growing cloud PBX product in the history of cloud PBX. So, but when we said we were going to go launch that, it wasn't like, hey, this is an incubated startup inside the business. This is, we're going to go invest in this and this is going to be the next great thing. So I think um, you have to have, a let's put it this way, a startup mentality. So I think as you go into a country or you take that pop approach, I think you want to think like an entrepreneur. However, you also have to think like you're, you're building something for scale and you know that this is a core part of the business. So for example, when we entered into South Korea, you know, we spent about a year planning for it. You know, we established partnerships with Korea Telecom. We set the core team and market. We had foundational business in that uh, country. It was already starting to produce the, the pre, you know, the pre measurements that we expected. And, uh, you know, we're not, we're not, receding we're going to continue to go into per the plan so i think you got to think about it like a core part of the business cool um let's go into wind up mode here i have one last one it's a bit of a softball seeing uh your international experience combined with with your employer but what is the best tip to increase collaboration over zoom between international sales teams well first of all like you know uh use it all the time right so yeah, I think you can create a lot of like great relationships if you use video and you don't hide behind like a phone call or, you know, you're just using your audio, et cetera. So I think video actually really does connect people in a way that you just can't, you, you either can't, you can't experience otherwise. The thing is, don't be afraid to use some of the advanced features that are there for your, to make your life easier, like translation or transcriptions. So, you know, we have live translation. Every time I address the Japanese team, even though I lived in Japan, I studied Japanese, I speak Japanese, we have live translation. Right. So I want them to understand every word that we use in the platform. And then we also use the transcription feature. We want to make it easier for them. Right. So I'd say, like, use those functions are there for you to make international development easier. And then obviously, like the productivity tools like whiteboarding and, you know, uh, imagery like the emojis and so forth. Everybody understands what the heart looks like or, you know, the thumbs up or so forth. So those are always good to break down, you know, borders and, and so forth. We're working on something to get rid of the time zone problem, but. I don't know. Somebody has to stay up late and somebody has to get up early, unfortunately. Yeah. Still do. Uh, Neeraj, anything? Yeah. yeah, I have one question, Abe. Just, um, just regarding Japan, a lot of our companies enter Japan via joint venture um, and, and will sometimes bring in you know, local money for that joint venture. Uh, sometimes yeah. a, a firm like JCC to launch <laughs> with this joint venture approach versus like a fully owned thing with your own people. Could you just share any comments on that? I mean, look, I think there's, there's, there's absolute, you know, uh, validation that it works. You know, if you look at, again, the Salesforce example, which is a classic early entrance with Sunbridge, 
look no further than Bill Binch and, you know, Marketo and the wonderful JV that they established with Denso. I mean, that was a real strategic and a great leader, great leadership that helped, helped uh, devise that go to market. I think it can, it can certainly work in a country like that, for sure. Obviously, the key is to find the right partner. Companies like Japan Cloud, I think, are real focused on establishing those kinds of JVs and helping cloud companies develop in that market. And I think that's, you know, that's a fundamental option. We elected not to do that. You know, we established our own KK and, you know, uh, Eric had a very, very strong belief in Japan. He had lived there. You know, he uh, had some early contacts and, and interests. Ultimately, we had a strong partnership with SoftBank, which really helped us accelerate in the market. So uh, I, I think it's very viable for sure. I think for a country like Japan and and there's a proven path to do that. Okay, great, great. Yeah. And then you, you mentioned Eric. So I, I was, you know, it's to me like working with a great CEO is like a, a privilege. And, and I, you know, spent a little time with Eric. I think, I think he's, you know, really special. Uh, but I'm curious, anything that you you can point to that he did that really supported you in your mission to, I think, build now, was, was it a billion dollars of, of ARR internationally, right? Or maybe more. Yeah, billion and a half in revenue. It's about, <laughs> we're approaching 40% of the business. So yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's really grown nicely. Um, I think, you know, first of all, he had to, he had to, he had to get his head around the fact that it was time. It was interesting because we had a lot of trust for, for first for Eric, the most important thing is speed of trust. And I was fortunate to have gotten to know him and you're right. He's an exceptional leader on all fronts. And when the time was right for the company, I felt it. And ultimately he did too. And then when the trust and the timing met opportunity, i.e. the preparation for the IPO and then the IPO, and then obviously the necessity to grow outside the U S uh, we leaned on one another and I felt like, you know, I, he always had confidence to say, go do this. And I want you to, but at the same token, he is extremely driven. So, you know, every time we would have a projection, he's like, it's not good enough. Right. So you can do better than that. So I think the sign also of a good leader is one that causes you to think harder makes you to, you know, challenge your, you know, what you thought is possible. I had a really interesting conversation slightly before this call and, and the discussion was around think bigger. Imagine if everybody in the country was using it, how do we do that? Now, those are not typical, you know, CEO world. Sometimes like, especially in this economy, people can be a little bit cautious and we have to be, we have to be real, but I think there's some, there's a real privilege for somebody that says, Hey, look, go do this. I'm behind it. And by the way, you're going to get off easy. So if you if you if you're saying that it's time to go do this, I'm going to ask you for more. And he has the right to do that. So plus it's his company, so he has the right to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Abe, I could uh, I could easily continue this masterclass on uh, global, um, but I want to thank you for joining us. Pleasure. We do have uh, we've only been in business for three podcasts, but we have a small tradition here on Sound Bites that for our guests we like to give a thank you, and you get your choice. Of a pair of wayfarers or aviators. Ooh, hey, we're going around the world. It's got to be aviators. It's All right, be. yes. The whole, the whole, the whole team that produces this, we bet on what oh. is going to spec is going <laughs> to pick, and, and I nailed that one. So uh, I think I'm <laughs> on the order. Classic. So, Abe, uh, hey, really, uh, truly, again, as a friend and as a business colleague, uh, I was really excited to have you join. 
us on the battery sound bites webinar here and um, share your experience with with um, all of our listeners. So thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Us no, pleasure, pleasure to be here. I really thanks, appreciate sir. the chance to be included. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Really appreciate it. Awesome. My pleasure. Take care. Bye, guys.